All right. Uh, you can go ahead and uh, grab a Bible and be prepared to flip through it. I'll just remind you, we are in a sermon series right now called The Gathered Church. And my aim in doing this, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, is really to just kind of help refresh our understanding of the church. Uh, we, there, there's a phrase for that. It's called ecclesiology, the study of the church. Something that we place a lot of emphasis on and value here at Edgewater. But of course, after you know, 18, 19 months of disrupted church life because of the pandemic, uh, a lot of people are new to the, the church here. Just kind of wanted to, to make sure that we refreshed our understanding of what the church is. What do we do? Why, why do we exist? What is God's purpose in all of this? And secondarily, to encourage us to get back to church, the gathering on Sunday mornings and the body life that happens during the week, because of all the, the disruptions, it's not good for us, ultimately, to not be the body. So it's an encouragement on that front, too. I'm telling you this not only to set you up for where we're headed, but also to let you know this is a, an atypical sermon series for us. We usually go through a book of the Bible and just kind of expositionally walk through it. Uh, this is more of a topical series, so I don't have a passage to direct you to. Keep your eyes on the screen. We'll put passages up as I reference them this morning. There will be a couple times when I'll ask you to turn someplace, so just have your thumbs ready to go, all right? Let me pray. Let's ask the Lord to meet with us as we open his word. Father, we thank you for the gathering of your people, your saints. We thank you for the church, this this assembly that you call so many different things, Lord. You call us the body of Christ. You call us the bride of Christ. You call us a family. We are brothers and sisters together in Jesus. Lord, there's a million metaphors, it seems, in the scriptures that you use to, to help us understand what it is that you've called us to. Why we are all necessary ingredients here, Lord. And why... All of us together exist to, uh, to exalt you, to praise you, to worship you, Lord, to depend on you as, as our God and as Jesus as our, our head and our elder brother, Lord. So may your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and minds even now as we look at your word, as we talk through some just basic principles of, of the church this morning. I pray that it would be not just sort of a lecture, it may seem that way, Lord, but I pray that it would be formative, that you would just deepen our love for you and one another, our love for this thing called the church, and help us to understand what it is that we're doing here. We do this for your glory, so Lord, be glorified in us. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So the first week of our series, we talked about what is the church? What is it? Uh, you can go back and listen to any of these messages online. Last week, we, uh, we, we talked a little bit more about uh, kind of following through with, with that, that idea of what the church is. Uh, this week, I want to talk more about uh, what do we do? Like, we're here right now, 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. You all showed up. What do we do here on a Sunday? What is gathered worship about that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. What do we do and why do we do it, okay? So I want you to, uh, uh, some of you probably remember this and probably many of you were too young at this point, but back in 2011, the Pepsi company found themselves embroiled in a bit of controversy over a Super Bowl ad submission. 
which is probably exactly what they were hoping for, by the way. You, you've heard that phrase, there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? I'm sure they were thinking about this because they came up with this idea for a Super Bowl commercial that was, frankly, very controversial. The company was aiming to highlight two of their products in one 30-second ad, Pepsi Max, which was their zero-calorie soft drink. I think they've renamed it by now, but that was one. And then their hugely popular chip brand, Doritos. So what was the idea behind this commercial and what was the controversy centered around? Well, it, it featured a church pastor. This was the plot of the commercial. It featured a church pastor who was discouraged by low church attendance. And so he's sitting in his office and he sees this, uh, this list uh, of weekly attendance and it's this really low stack of papers. And then there's this really high stack of papers under the heading of like the church's financial obligations. So he's discouraged about low attendance and financial burdens in the church. So he needs to get more people to come. What was his plan then to bring people into the church? Well, remember, it's a commercial for Pepsi and Doritos. His plan was to serve Pepsi and Doritos for communion. And of course, in the commercial, this plan was wildly successful. It shows people lined up out the door right? And they're all coming into the church and they're all like frantic and, and, and excited to be there. Not so much because they're there for communion, but of course they really wanted the free Doritos and Pepsi. So you can imagine for this commercial to air, anyone with a sense of, of reverence for Christ, anyone with a sense of reverence for his, his death on the cross and the sacred symbol of the Lord's table, uh, it was shocking. It was offensive. So the question is, why would Pepsi think to come up with an idea like this? Why would they go with such a controversial ad that was in such bad taste? It's a good question, but I remember at the time when I saw the commercial thinking, you know, that idea is not original to Pepsi. See, back in the early 2000s, there was a developing phenomenon in Western evangelicalism, primarily here in the United States, called the Emergent Church Movement. Anybody heard of that? It kind of came and went, right? But it was a big deal back in the early 2000s, and the idea behind the emergent church was to sort of deconstruct much of the institutional nature of the church in favor of what they would call more authentic sort of spiritual experiences, right? So again, kind of like we talked last week, I mentioned a, a, an article about a guy named Kyle who was like less interested in the, the formalities of the Sunday gathering and more interested in going fly fishing and talking about Jesus with friends, right? That's kind of what the emergent church was, was into as well. And they were meeting in places like pubs instead of church sanctuaries, or they were abandoning expositional sermons in favor of sort of more open dialogues amongst people where there wasn't necessarily a, a sense of like, hey, here's the, here's the right interpretation. It was sort of like, let's just talk about it. What do you think this means? What do, what do I think this means? And yes, even sub substituting the bread and the wine or the juice of the Lord's table for things like chips and soda. And I remember that. I remember reading about a particular emergent church who did just that. This was prior to the 2011 Super Bowl ad, except what they did, this emergent church, was they sipped Orange Crush instead of Pepsi Max, but they still used Doritos. And it turns out that then Pepsi did not have to come up with this idea on their own. There was a so-called church already doing that. Soda and Doritos 
for communion. Now, all of this brings up the question, what should we be doing when we gather together for corporate worship on a Sunday morning? Does the Bible regulate what we do? Does it give us instruction and guideline to what we do, or is it more sort of open to interpretation? Is it more open to cultural whim? That's the question. And it's an important question. So here's what I hope to demonstrate this morning. I hope to demonstrate that God actually does regulate. He does, in other words, he governs what the local church should do when we gather together for corporate worship. He hasn't left that up for us to decide. He's given us some clear instruction there of what is valid and what is not valid when we gather together. How's he done that? He's revealed it to us in his word. And we are to worship him according to his design, right? To his intent. And so we need to look to the word of God and find out what he has to say. Let me give you a, a few foundational arguments for this assertion uh, that God has a, a design here, that he's regulated our worship. This is not the, the main points of my sermon here today, but still taking a look at this I think is worthwhile. There's there's a book that a guy named Matt Merker wrote uh, on corporate worship, and that's where I, I, I pulled this from. It's really helpful. He says the, the first is an argument from idolatry. An argument from idolatry. If you recall the scene in Exodus 32 when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's receiving the Ten Commandments from God, what is happening at the base of the mountain? All the people of, of, of Israel are, are gathered around there along with Aaron and they're fashioning a golden calf, right? They're making this, this little idol, this little image in which they can worship. And the people were indeed, they stated there, seeking to worship other gods. They were, they were seeking to worship false gods. But Aaron, being the, the dutiful leader uh, under, under Moses, tries to kind of like redirect them to say, look, uh, cool, we'll make the cow, but let's, let's make this about worshiping the true God instead of these false gods. And so it says there in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the golden calf and he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. How did God respond to that? Well, God rightly condemned this. And in doing that, he made it abundantly clear that he doesn't just forbid the worship of false gods, which is the, the first and the second commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image, right? He doesn't just condemn that, but he also forbids worshiping him, the true God, in the wrong way, in an idolatrous way, to fashion him according to our, our own desires, our own conceptions, there's a second argument that's an argument from the doctrine of God. If you remember the Samaritan woman at the well who Jesus encounters and, and they discuss this idea of worship in John chapter 4, and she thinks there that worshiping God is all about doing so in the right location, in the proper spot. And so she asked Jesus about this in John 4.20. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And she's kind of questioning him about what's the right spot. But Jesus corrects her by telling her that right worship has more to do with being consistent with God's nature 
He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So in other words, he's saying there's a right way and a wrong way to worship God. Finally, there's an argument from the sufficiency of Scripture. I'll put up on the screen here 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work by the Word of God. Corporate worship is among the foremost good works that we do. Right? It's one of, the, one of the chief things that we do together as a work together for God. So if Scripture equips us for every good work, it makes sense that we stay within the boundaries of Scripture to discern how to worship God. So as we think about these kind of basic ideas that we're pulling from Scripture, there is something that God wants from us. The elders and the worship leaders have to think very clearly and carefully every week about the what and the why of what we do here on Sunday mornings. And every church hopefully does this, right? Every church then develops a liturgy, including ours, which some of you might think that's a strange thought coming to a church that feels kind of like uh, kind of casual here, right? Uh, you might think of a liturgy as something that happens in, in more formal traditions like in the Catholic church or, uh, or the Anglican tradition. But But no, the word liturgy simply refers to the form or formulary according to which public religious worship is conducted. So how you do this is your liturgy. And the structure of our worship services here at Edgewater, you'll notice, may vary a little bit from week to week, but I I think you'll see that the basic framework is always pretty much the same. There's certain things that we do every single Sunday, right? We opened up this Sunday with prayer, and we did a scripture reading, and we sang some songs, and we've got a sermon, and we'll do a benediction, right? There are things that we seem to do every single week or monthly with things like communion or baptism. Why do we do them? Well, I want you to know that there's three factors to consider when a church forms its liturgy, all right? There are the elements of corporate worship, the things that we do. There's the forms of worship, how we do them. And then there's the circumstances that kind of are dictated by who, who are we, what's our, what's our cultural setting, what language do we speak, etc., etc. right? So you've got elements, forms, and circumstances. Let's take communion, for example. We talked about communion already with Doritos and Pepsi. Why do we do it? There's a, communion is an element of worship because Jesus commanded it. What does he say? He says, do this in remembrance of me, right? There's a command to do that. It's an element, then, of our worship. It's a form, then, when we think about, well, how will we go about doing that? Do we use leavened bread or unleavened bread? Do we choose to do grape juice or, or wine, right? Do we, do we uh, do that around a table or do we pass it out and serve it? There's a, there's a form in which we choose to do that. And then there's circumstances that might dictate how a church does that. Do we, for in- instance, do that every week or do we do it every month? So on and so forth. You get the idea? 
elements, forms, and circumstances. Now, when we think about the, the forms and the circumstances, those are judgment calls that we have to make. And hopefully that we, we're discerning those things through God's word, but we have some freedom to do them a little bit differently. For example, the way we do communion here at Edgewater might look really different than the way the church in China is doing communion, right? There's different circumstances there. So we discern those things, and hopefully we're discerning those things well with Scripture, which is why I think Doritos and Orange Crush is a bad idea, right? It, 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 what does that communicate? It communicates a cheapening of the cross, the broken body and blood of Christ, right? At least for us, I think, I think we would all say, yeah, that just feels wrong. That feels cheap. Right? It's a judgment call. But the elements, the elements of worship are not judgment calls. They're non-negotiable. Again, they're the things that we're commanded to do. And that's my main concern here as we walk through the rest of the message here today. The elements of worship. What are the elements that Scripture teaches us to include when we gather for corporate worship? I've said before, I want to I keep this central here. God regulates our worship through his word. So what we are trying to accomplish here at Edgewater, this is just informative for you, is to follow something that's, that's called the regulative principle. All right? God regulates by his word what we do. So what are the principles there that are regulated? The regulative pr principle is, is basically this. It's that we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, and we see the Bible through the ordinances. All right, you don't have to write those down because I'll come back to them. That's the five points that we're going to walk through here. So let's talk about them. The first thing that we think about in how we do worship is, number one, we read the Bible. We read the Bible. 1 Timothy 4.13. Here's the, here's the command that, that Paul gives to Timothy, a young pastor. Here's what you do in your corporate gatherings. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So if we believe, and I, and I, I, I hope we do, we do believe this, that the Word of God is powerful. If we believe that it's central, not only for shaping our worship service, but also for shaping our lives, then the reading of Scripture aloud for all of us to hear is of utmost importance in our corporate worship services. You probably are familiar with Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word is powerful. The word shapes us, right? The word corrects us and makes us more like Jesus. If we believe that, then we have to say, you know what, there is a unique power in reading God's word when we gather and reading whole passages of God's word without comment or exposition just reading the scriptures. And when we do that, we acknowledge that the life and the growth of the local church depends on that power that comes through the word of God. When we make time for this in our corporate worship every week, we make a statement that we place a value on scripture. We place a value on the Bible. It's a way in which we say, we need to hear what God has to say, right? 
Not what anybody else has to say. We need to hear what God has to say because we're weak. We're wholly dependent upon him. It's just a tangible way for us to sit under the word, to listen to it without interruption, to be instructed by it, to be assessed by it, and to acknowledge that we're willing to come under its judgments. We need to hear the word read to us. That's essential for us. I hope you notice that we do that every week. We do this every Sunday morning. There's always a scripture reading, and I I always try to ask one of you to come up and give that reading. This morning it was Libby, right? And the reason why I ask one of you to come up is not just to encourage participation in the service. That that is a goal, I'll admit. But it's really so that there's there's a visible sense in which this is all of us needing to hear this. All of us needing to participate together in just submitting ourselves to Scripture. And how do I choose, then, the passages that are read? Well, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll I'll, I'll choose a passage that's connected to the theme of the morning. The theme of the morning is usually something that's directed by the sermon that we're going to be in, right? So I'll, I'll choose a, a passage that's, that's, that's along that theme, or maybe I'll make a pastoral decision just sort of based on what I, what I sense we need as an encouragement or as an exhortation as a church. But I'm careful to look through the whole counsel of Scripture, not just to kind of stick with New Testament or, or Old Testament, to try to, try to give us exposure to all of God's Word so that we can see that all of God's Word is truly sufficient for us. Do you know that even our benediction that we, that we say together at the end of a service is a corporate reading of Scripture? Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. We say that every Sunday before we go out. That is a reading from 2 Corinthians 13. So reading Scripture, hearing the Word of God, is an important, essential element of what we do And now you know a little bit about why we do it, all right? Now, having said that, if we just said reading the Bible without comment, just letting it land on this is a powerful way in which God speaks to us as his people, why add comment to it? What is up with the sermons then? Isn't that adding comment to the word of God? Why do we do that? Well, that's the second element. We not only read the Bible, but we preach the Bible. We preach the Bible. I read for you as we read the Bible, 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Right after that, he says, to exhortation and to teaching. Devote yourselves to reading, but also the exhortation and the teaching. 2 Timothy 4, uh, verses 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, here's the charge, Timothy, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with complete patience and teaching. So there are biblical instructions here for the preaching and teaching through the word. And that's not just a New Testament concept, by the way. We see it in the Old Testament as well. When the exiles came back from from Babylon, and we spent a lot of time over the last two years walking through 
uh, some of those Bible passages, right? But, 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 but they came back and, and they were trying to relearn what it meant to gather together for corporate worship. How do we worship God rightly? Ezra, who was their leader at that time, they're told in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, it says, for he set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do what it says, and then to teach those statutes and rules in Israel. So we have this pattern of a pastor who's, who's studying the word and letting that word form him so that he can get up and teach the congregation what it says and live by example in front of them to live out what it says. Around that same time, uh, in Ezra, we also see uh, the book of Nehemiah. Now, here's the first place I'll have you turn. Nehemiah chapter 8. It's on page 403 if you're using the Pew Bible. This will not be on the screen, so if you want to follow along, and I hope you will, turn with me there. Page 403, Nehemiah 8. Here's Ezra again, reading the law. Nehemiah 8.1, it says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So they are gathering together corporately as a body, right? And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, to bring the scriptures that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. So here you go. He's, he's up there in front of the people. He's proclaiming to them God's word. We see here a pulpit is, is erected, right, for him to stand on. Beside him stood a bunch of guys whose names I'll, I'll skip over because they're hard to pronounce, but it doesn't matter. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also a, a bunch of other guys were there, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So you have exposition going on here, right? They're reading the text, they're giving sense to it, and helping people understand what it says. So we see preaching and teaching in the congregation, both in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. Now, we might ask this question. I, I've heard this question asked a lot. I mean, it's 21st century now. Isn't preaching kind of passe? I mean, this, is, this is ancient stuff. We're talking about thousands of years ago here, right? Aren't there more effective ways now of teaching and learning than simply listening to some guy talk for 45 minutes? I'm looking at your faces right now to see if any of you agree with that statement. <laughs> I've heard people say that. I've heard people say that sermons are a waste of time because most of you will forget about 95% of what I've said by tomorrow morning. Well, 
Maybe, but I'm, I, I think I would say this. That's like saying eating lunch today is a waste of time because you're only going to absorb a certain percentage of the nutrients, and by dinner time, you're going to be hungry again. Why bother eating lunch when you're just going to be hungry by dinner, right? It's the same kind of logic. I find the words of my friend and fellow pastor Brad Wheeler helpful here. He says this. He says, what, what good do all these sermons do if we proceed to forget most of what we heard shortly thereafter? Well, he says, we don't forget everything we hear, first of all. That's a misnomer. I trust most of us can remember sermons that challenge how we thought about God, that challenge how we thought about things like marriage or money. We're forever changed by those. So why write off the whole enterprise? But beyond that, he says the weekly word in our morning messages is only meant to get us to the next Sunday. It's kind of like eating lunch, right? It's going to get you to dinner. The weekly word gets us to next Sunday. In God's weekly rhythm, he seems to grasp that come Sunday, we're famished and we need to be filled again. My sermons, your sermons, he says, they don't have to remain with our people throughout eternity. It's not meant to change their lives in that sense. They're meant to sustain them until next week, one week at a time, until heaven. And there, the word made flesh will dwell with us forever, and the need for sermons will be no more. I think that's wise, right? What is it that we do here? Why why this constant hearing the word explained, giving sense to it, right? It's it's sort of like, like rain, right? If we're if we're this fertile field. We need the, the rain of the word. We need the rain of the teaching of the word. We need the rain of all the things that we do as we gather together in corporate settings for worship and for study and for prayer to kind of keep, keep our grass green, right? That's what it's like. It's this, that's the that's pattern that we're called to. This is why it's important that we don't neglect the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, it says in Hebrews 10. We need that rain. We need that consistency. And so that's why we engage in the preaching. That's why preaching is so central to our worship services. So we read the Bible. We preach the Bible. Thirdly, we pray the Bible. We pray the Bible. 1 Timothy 2.1. Again, Paul giving instructions to Timothy, a pastor, about how to lead in the church. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. What does Jesus say in Matthew 21? He says to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What does that have to do with uh, praying the Bible? We're, We're called to pray, What does praying the Bible have to do with that? Well, again, this is sort of like a, it's sort of like somewhere in between a judgment call and and an actual command, right? We're taught to pray in Scripture. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. How do we learn then in that example how to pray? We read the Scripture and we're informed by it how we do that. Sometimes we pray God's word back to him. If you notice that at the beginning of the service today, I opened this up in a prayer out of Psalm 119, just praying God's word back to him. Uh, another, another thing that you, I think you'll notice often is I think Pastor Andy is really good at this on a, on a weekly basis. He's constantly giving us 
prayers that are directly from Scripture. What's the purpose of that? I think it helps us acknowledge together that when we approach God in prayer, that we want to do that on His terms and not ours. Right? We're saying, God, help to, help to shape us and form us by Your Word as to who You are and what You're like, what our needs are, and, and how to express those needs back to You. Praying then Scripture is, again, instructive for all of us. When you come and and we pray together corporately, and you're led in how to pray corporately, or excuse me, uh, based on Scripture, that helps inform you then to, to how you pray when you're praying on your own. So do we pray then just Scripture? No. Remember the passage in 1 Timothy, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for the people. There are there's so many ways in which we can pray. We should be telling God the things that are on our hearts. We should be asking him for our specific needs and letting our desires and our requests be made known to him. We're to cast our cares upon him, to express our anxieties to him, right? We're called to pray according to, to what's, what's going on in us, but we need help to express and to know how, not only how to pray, but how do we pray for the will of God? How do we ask God for the things that are according to his will? We need the directive of scripture to, to guide that. And so we're commanded here to, to, when we gather together, to pray together and to pray according to God's word. Fourthly, we sing the Bible. We sing the Bible. Ephesians 5.19. Again, this is Paul addressing the church and telling them about their corporate worship gatherings. He says, in those gatherings, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. This is probably one of, I would say, most people's favorite thing that we do when we gather together for worship is we love the singing. We love to, to express together in musical worship. And, and there's a reason for that. It's a powerful thing. Music is a powerful gift because it engages us on so many different levels, right? It engages our emotions. It gives rise to our expressions of praise and prayer. And it also aids our, the corporate nature of our worship. We sing in unison together when we sing these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And one of the beautiful things about singing the truths of Scripture is that, 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 that music sort of helps drive into our memories the things that we are proclaiming, right? You can remember the words of a song. I dare you to recite the alphabet back to me without doing it with the tune, right? Why do we teach our kids the alphabet according to the A, B, C, D, E? Because music helps like, like, like drive it into us, right? Helps us to recall those simple truths. So it's a great way for us then as the church to recall the truths of the gospel, to recall the, the words of Scripture. So if that's the case, if that's the power of singing and the power of music, that's why it's really important then for us to be thoughtful about the kinds of songs that we sing. It's important for us to sing songs that are rich in gospel content, right? Songs that are rich in the truths of the, the Word of God. So content becomes far more important, I think, than form or circumstances, right? It's, too, it's, it's a shame that too often we sort of get our, our preferences about music 
wrapped up in forms and circumstances. Well, I like hymns. Well, I don't like hymns. I like modern chorus songs, right? Churches split over dumb stuff like that, right? And of course, it's such a, such a limited perspective to think about what kind of preferences we might have in our music when we think about the fact that, like, if we were to visit the church in Africa or South America or, or Southeast Asia, like, it would look, sound so different than anything that we're used to or familiar with that we'd kind of recognize, like, oh, there's, there's lots of different forms. But hopefully the content of what we are continually singing as the church are reinforcing the truths of the gospel and the word of God. I think that that's something that we need to think more carefully about. And I'll be honest with you, it's hard for us to do this. It's hard to to choose songs that are gospel rich because in our culture, a lot of the songs that are sung, like if you listen to Christian radio or you kind of hear like the most popular songs that are being sung in, in, in so many churches across the United States right now, I find that, that a lot of them are actually not anchored in gospel truth so much as they're kind of anchored in the, the, the cultural moment of sort of like uh, therapeutic words. So what I mean by that is, listen to, be careful, listen to a lot of the, the, the songs that are, that are often sort of uh, put up forth as popular worship songs, and listen, are you hearing God, this is, this is what I know to be true about you. Help me to remember these things. Or are you hearing something that sounds a little bit more like, uh, oh, I'm so, I'm so broken and so needy, but you, you're my, you're my comforter. You're my, right, like, like, I just need more of you. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. Because we think about the Psalms, the Psalms often say things like that, right? However, the content of the Psalms is not just to say, Lord, I'm broken and I need more of you, but the Psalms always turn the corner and say, and here's what I know to be true about you. Here's what I need you to remind me of about you. And I think our modern worship songs don't do that enough and don't do that very well. So it's hard for us to do that. But I want, us to, to, I want you to think about that as you're thinking about what songs you fill your minds with and, why, and hopefully give you an understanding of what songs we try to sing here at Edgewater. I know we're not always singing the most popular songs, but there's a reason for that. I want to sing songs that are rich in gospel content, rich in the word of God. All right, I'll move on. Fifthly, we see the Bible. We see the Bible. And again, uh, what do we mean by that? I'm talking about the ordinances of communion and baptism. Again, what's the element here? What's the command? Luke 22, he took bread. Jesus took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's the... That's the command of communion, right? Do this in remembrance of me. And baptism, we see in many places, but Romans 6, 3 through 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's, he's giving us here a, a reason 
for understanding why, what baptism symbolizes and what it accomplishes. And of course, what does Peter say when the people say, what do we do? They've heard him preach the word. They've heard him give the gospel. What do we do? They're, they're cut to the heart and he says, repent and be baptized, right? I love how Mark Dever says this about the ordinances. He says the ordinances are the dramatic presentation of the gospel. So we see the Bible through our ordinances because they're a dramatic presentation of the gospel. They are the moving pictures that represent the spiritual realities of the gospel that are written and directed by Jesus himself. I think that's a really beautiful picture. Think about what the ordinances portray. Again, what does communion portray? It is the broken body and the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. It directs us to the cross. We recognize that Jesus died as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He's, he's our substitute, right? Our, our, our sin is placed upon his shoulders. The wrath of God falls on him instead of us. That when we take communion, we are identifying with his death in that way. We're identifying then with that sacrifice. We have been made clean. We have been set free by his broken body and his shed blood. When we take that together, we're proclaiming that together until he comes back. And similarly, baptism, it's that picture. It's that dramatization of being dead with him, being buried with him, and then being raised again to new life with him. It's the identification of being in him, washed clean by him, belonging to him. His death, my death. His resurrection, my resurrection. It's a dramatization of that. And when we participate in these ordinances, we experience means of grace that reinforce then the trustworthiness of the gospel. Every time we do those things, we're saying we believe that Jesus' death and resurrection have accomplished this salvation. And we believe that our salvation is found in it. We participate in that salvation. They're visible signs and seals of our participation in the new covenant. And when we do them and they're outward signs, they visibly mark us out as God's people who are not like the rest of the world. So back to the question, what should we do when we get together for corporate worship? We should come to the word. We should ask God, what's the worship that's pleasing to you? What have you shown us in your word? How do we how do we not approach you in an idolatrous way? How do we approach you according to the doctrine of who you are? And we see clear examples. Well, then you read the Bible. You preach the Bible. You pray the Bible. You sing the Bible. And you see it through the ordinances of baptism and communion. And that is a system called the regulative principle that we try to follow here at Edgewater. Now, the regular principle itself is not something that you see in Scripture. It's the elements of it that we see in Scripture. But it helps to guide us according to what has God revealed about himself to us, what has he revealed about ourselves, and what has he revealed about the kind of worship that he's told us that he's looking for. It's worship that's governed by the Word of God. I hope that helps you recognize that when you come on a Sunday morning, there's intent to what we do. Uh, it's not haphazard. It's not just sort of, well, that's what the church kind of, that's, that's well, I think sermons are normal. Singing seems pretty normal. Like, there's a reason for that. 
And again, that reason is to drive God's word into us so that we can worship him, we can know him, we can encounter the gospel, we can, we can participate together in our corporate salvation. This regulative principle is not a set of rules, but it's a posture that helps us to worship God according to his will. Next week, we're going to talk about this a little bit more and dive a little bit deeper into the centrality of God's word. And Andy's going to give that message. And what, what he's aiming to do in that message is not only reinforce the idea that the word is central to our corporate gathering, but to ask us in an evaluative sense, how is it shaping us? Is it shaping us? How is it shaping us? So until then, I trust that your time here today will be another rain shower of encouragement upon you that feeds you and sustains you through the week so that we can come back next Sunday, perhaps famished and ready to read, preach, pray, sing, and see the Bible all over again. So you may not know this, but oftentimes on a Sunday afternoon or a Monday, your pastors are going to sit around and evaluate the things that they said and go, oh, I got a moment of clarity. I should have said this better. And sometimes, like today, that moment of clarity comes really quickly. I, I just, I, I, I should have, I wanted to say this, and, I, and I, I had a hard time with it, thinking of it in the moment. But let me just clarify one thing before I dismiss you. When I talk about the therapeutic nature of song, here's what I, here's what I mean by that. My concern is that we live in a cultural moment where we're constantly being told that our feelings define us, right? I feel sad, so I am defined by sadness. I feel confusing attractions, so I'm defined by those attractions. My feelings define me. That's the cultural message. So my concern with therapeutic Christian worship songs is that we just train ourselves to run from one feeling to another feeling. If the music can just make me feel a little bit more like spiritually happy, then I'll run to that and I'll use that as an antidote to my, my other feelings. The problem is it's just a feeling and the feeling goes away and where am I, then where am I left, right? Or I'm defined by just a shallow Christianity. So that's my point. I, I just want to make sure that that's clear. When we sing songs that admit that we have trials and struggles and tribulations and feelings that, don't, that, that aren't good, we can say, who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save, faithful in love. My debt is paid. The victory is won. The Lord is my salvation. That's not a feeling, that's truth. And that truth will direct my feelings to the right place. That's what I should have said in my sermon. <laughs> so I didn't want you to go without that. Thanks for indulging me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the way, Lord, that your word really is instructive. Everything that we need, Lord, you've, you've revealed to us through your word. 
And of course, God, as we, as we recognize that it's your word that is your revelation to us, Lord, we, we also want to be clear that we're not idolizing our Bibles, but we're seeing your word is a, is a pathway, it's your communication to us that directs us to you, to you as our God, to your Son as our Savior, to your Spirit as the, the indwelling presence of you with us, God with us. Our, you're our God, we're your people. So Lord, I, I, just, I pray that you'd help us as a church to be faithful, to continually look to you. Not to be swayed by, by any kind of uh, cultural pressure to, to do silly things that, that are just um, entertainment driven or, or there to, uh, to, to just sort of draw in shallowly the people around us or to just therapeutically soothe our, our wounded hearts, Lord. But, but Lord, that, that you would drive us in worship to you who is the source of our life. To you who is our salvation. To you who are our rock and our anchor and our king. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the songs that we're able to sing and the prayers that we're able to lift up. Lord, be glorified in all of that, but also form us by these things. Form us by these things. Make us a people of your word. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.